0: It's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your God is? Well, if you're a Christian, He's right here with you. And today, because we are together, He is with us in a very special way in the midst of us. If you don't know God, please come to meet Him. There is another place God exists, and that is in His Word. This is just paper and ink. But it's the very words of God. And today we're in Matthew chapter 9. So if you happen to have this copy from the table, it's on page 814. Now this is a rather long chapter, so pray for Pastor Mark because he has a great deal of wonderful truth to help us understand. And if you don't understand, just keep listening because he's going to help make it clear. We are actually going to read the end of the chapter, and we're going to start on verse 35, so this is chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Hmm. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May he bless the word.
1: Well, as Hugo said, we're in chapter 9 this morning, and I'm glad to be able to open up this passage of Scripture to us together, and we're uh, making our way, if you're a guest, through Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter by chapter, and this is our ninth week in that Gospel, so we come to chapter 9 this morning. And just a quick review, Matthew chapter 1 through 4, the chapters that we considered early on in our series, are... Really foundational chapters that help us understand who Jesus is. And really Matthew's burden as the gospel writer sharing this narrative of the life of Jesus with us is to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is the long-awaited promised king of Israel, and he has come and fulfilled all the Old Testament. All the Old Testament types and shadows and promises that alluded to this king who was going to come has finally come. He has arrived, and his name is Jesus And so Matthew chapter 4 shows us that. And then in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we get Jesus' words. We get the words of the king. We get Jesus' own words about what his kingdom is all about. And he teaches us for three chapters what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. And then Pastor Jonathan last week brought us into Matthew chapter 8, where we begin to see the king's works. We don't just see his words, but we begin to see what he does, how he acts. And chapter 9 continues on that. He continues to perform miracles and give interpretation to those miracles and speak to who he really is as the king. So chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 that Hugo just read for us are really the hinge of chapters 9 and 10. So I'm going to be preaching, God willing, chapter 10 next week. And chapter 9, 35 through 38 is really the hinge. And what I want to do this week is unpack chapter 9, which is really summarized in verses 35 and 36. So let's look at those again. Matthew chapter 9, 35 and 36. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching. That's what we saw in chapters 5 through 7. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And now, chapters 8 and 9, healing every disease and every affliction. Now... Why was he doing this? Why was he teaching? Why was he healing? Chapter 36 gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus and what was operating in his mind as he's going about his ministry. Look at verse 36. It says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You want a glimpse into the heart of Jesus? There's a glimpse. You want to know what is motivating Jesus Christ at a really fundamental level? It's that. When he looks at people, when he was looking at all of these crowds that were gathering around him, what he felt was compassion for them. Compassion literally means to suffer with. We talk about the passion of the Christ. That's the sufferings of Jesus. Compassion is to suffer with, to suffer alongside. So it's as if he looked at the people's suffering and felt like it was his suffering, that he was the one suffering. He was suffering alongside these people. Now, what did he see? He says he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep without a shepherd are lost. They don't know what they don't know what they're doing, why they're doing it. And so Jesus teaches us something here. If you didn't know, we are part of the crowds. This is a general statement about humanity. When Jesus looks at us, he doesn't look at us and say, "Wow, people who've got it all together. People who are doing just what I want them to do. People who know how to figure out life on their own." No, he says, These people need a shepherd. They might look great. They might have a high income. They might be able to keep a job. They might be able to have a decent family life. They might be able to be an upstanding American citizen, but harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd from his perspective. And so, are you humble enough to admit that this morning? Or does that kind of assault your pride? Are you humble enough to say, I need a shepherd Because if you don't, Jesus will have nothing to do with you. He will have nothing to do with you because you will have nothing to do with him. But if you see yourself as someone who is in need of guidance, help from outside yourself, input on life that doesn't come natively from you, both in word and deed, then Jesus welcomes you to him this morning. And church, I'm convinced that most of us who gather together here this morning are convinced of our need of a shepherd. We want Jesus as our shepherd. We want to know what he's like as a shepherd. And we want to know how to follow him as our shepherd. And so the next couple weeks, we're going to look at that. This week, what we're going to do is look at what it means for Jesus to be our shepherd. What it means for Jesus to be our compassionate shepherd. Because I think we see that all throughout Matthew 9. And then next week, so in other words, to take another metaphor from verses 37 and 38, what does it mean for Jesus to labor in the harvest? What does it mean for Jesus to come as a shepherd to help us as harassed and helpless sheep? And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what it means for us to labor in the harvest as an answer to the prayer of Jesus to raise up laborers that they might be sent into his harvest. So, this morning... I have six ways that the compassion of Jesus as our shepherd is demonstrated in Matthew 9. We're going to walk right through the chapter, and I want to point out for you six ways that Jesus is a compassionate shepherd toward you, his naturally harassed and helpless sheep. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it makes us love him more. And so let's pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we just want to pause and say that we can read these words, we can hear these words, I can preach these words, but only you, by your spirit and as the chief shepherd, can draw near to us and minister these things to our hearts. So we pray that we would not only see your compassion, but that we would sense your compassion this morning. We pray that we wouldn't only understand these things in our brains, but we would be transformed in our inner being through the sight of your glorious compassion toward us that our hearts would be melted, that they would be renewed in the love of God, that they would be just won over to you all over again this morning, that you are so great, that you are so kind, that you are so wonderful to us who are so undeserving and so needy. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would minister. You are still this same compassionate shepherd. We pray that you would draw near to us this morning and minister to us your needy sheep. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, six ways the compassion of Jesus is demonstrated in Matthew chapter 9. Number one, Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. Now, our ultimate need, now you think, why does it start there? Is that where your mind starts when you think about the compassion of Jesus? Or does it immediately go to physical things? Did you know that our deepest need is not physical? Our deepest need is spiritual. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift he can give to a person because it meets our greatest need. This is the central message of Christianity. It's central to what Jesus came to do. God will forgive your sins through Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done against God, no matter how sinful your past or present is, God is gracious and through Jesus he will wipe your sin away. Because he's compassionate. And that's what we see right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 9. Read with me verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic, Take heart my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is a this is a fantastic scene. Imagine it with me. Jesus sitting in a room with his disciples. And some people bring to him a paralytic. Paralytic, we don't know if he's completely paralyzed or just paralyzed from the waist down. Whatever, he can't walk. We know that much. And he comes into this room, and Jesus says something to him. He says, your sins are forgiven. And seeing their faith, seeing the fact that they're relying on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not what they came there for. They didn't come to get their sins forgiven. They came to get the paralytic raised up. But Jesus is interested in meeting this man's fundamental need first. Okay? It's not a physical need that's first and foremost. It's a spiritual need. And so he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's interesting that sin is contrasted with paralysis here, isn't it? Because sin is sort of a paralysis of the soul. That's what sin does to us. It makes us, it keeps us from moving and acting as we were originally created. That's what sin does to us by nature. It keeps us from being able to live as God created us to live, which namely was to love and serve him. So sin paralyzes us spiritually. And so we need Jesus to forgive our sin and release us from the paralyzing effects of sin. Notice how the scribes respond. They're not too happy about this. They hear what Jesus says and they know that only God can forgive sin. Not some prophet walking around with some ragtag disciples behind him. He says, this man's blaspheming because he's attributing to himself what only God can do. But Jesus says, he knows what they're thinking. They're just saying this to themselves. Jesus knowing their thoughts, it says in verse 4. Boy, that's a... That's a sobering truth. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Jesus knows everybody's thoughts all the time. Everybody. You don't have to say anything to Jesus for him to know your life. And when you appear before Jesus one day, you're not going to have to tell him any information about you. He's going to know you from the day you were born to the day you died and everything you did and thought. Even we don't even know that. He's going to remind us of things we've long forgotten. But that he remembers. that's a scary truth for those who are going to appear before Jesus outside of Jesus, those who are not in Christ by faith and not relying on Him for salvation. He says, "Why do you think evil in your hearts?" <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's like, "Why would you think it's evil that I just pronounced forgiveness of this man? Don't you know who I am? Four, which is easier to say. Now he's going to prove something. He's going to demonstrate. He's going to just do this miracle and prove. He's going to say, now which is easier to say? Rise up and walk, and this guy walks, or your sins are forgiven. Well, what are they going to say? What's easier to say? Well, what's easier to say is your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say. Because then there's no demonstrable evidence, demonstrable evidence right there that proves that. But what Jesus is going to do is say, look. I'm going to tell this man, rise and walk, so that you'll know that what I said about his sins being forgiven is true. And he says, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And the man does. Which means that if Jesus is able to do that, he's able to forgive sin. And isn't that good news for us? Isn't that good news for us, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus says it, it's true. So when he says to us, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest... He really gives it to us. He's not manipulating us. He's not pretending. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. Since only God is able to forgive sin and Jesus forgives sins and proves it by being able to raise this paralytic up, then he's God. Isn't that the implication of the passage? Have you ever heard that Jesus never claimed to be God? He's claiming to be God right here. Just because he doesn't say, I am God, believe me, doesn't mean he's not proving it right here. He doesn't correct their blasphemy. He calls it evil that they would think such a thing. And then he demonstrates his power to raise a man up and to forgive sin. So my question for you is, has Jesus forgiven your sin? If not, this morning you can ask him to. Right in your seat, you can bow your head and ask Jesus to forgive your sin. You know, Christians, we have to go on and ask Jesus to forgive our sin every day. That's why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, right? Forgive us this day our our trespasses. We need to ask him continually to forgive us of our sin. And he does because he's compassionate toward us. So that's the first demonstration of Jesus' compassion, that he forgives our sin. Second demonstration Of his compassion, Jesus calls us to himself. He not only forgives us our our sins, he calls us to himself. Look at verse 9. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus calls us to himself. You see what he does with Matthew here? This is, by the way, the same Matthew that's writing this gospel. Matthew's given us a little autobiography here telling about how he came to Jesus. And so he says in verse nine, he writes about how Jesus called him. Jesus, Matthew's sitting at a tax booth. He's a tax collector, which is not a noble profession in those days. It's a wealthy profession, but not one that was well-liked by the people. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and follow him. Now, isn't this a wonderful reminder of the compassion of Jesus? The compassion of Jesus is such that he doesn't wait for sinners to come to him. He goes to sinners. He doesn't wait for people to come around and follow him. He goes after people, and he calls them and speaks to them personally and says to them, follow me. Do you know that? If you're following Jesus today, it's because he did that for you. He personally called you to himself. That's a wonderful demonstration of Jesus' compassion, especially considering who this Matthew guy was. I mean, he's not a righteous man. He's one of those sick people that Jesus is talking about here. So what does Matthew do? Does he follow Jesus begrudgingly? Does he say, wait a second? No, he joyfully and gladly gets up from his tax booth and goes and follows Jesus and then throws a party and invites all of his friends over. That should teach us something about what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is not a killjoy. Following Christ does not mean the death of your gladness. Following Christ is an invitation to a party. Because that's what he does right here. He throws a big party and invites all of his tax collector and quote-unquote sinner friends, and they start sitting around with Jesus at the table. Now, do you know what table fellowship meant in the first century? It means that Jesus is accepting these people socially. See, the Pharisees and scribes, they never would have done something like this because it was to endorse their sin to sit down with these people. But Jesus says, no. How else am I going to win them unless I eat with them, unless we spend time together, unless we talk, which has implications for our mission, which we'll get to next week. But for right now, we're just focused on what Jesus is doing. And people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're really concerned about this methodology. They're all for look, they're all for people getting right with God. They're just not for this. But what they don't understand is this is the way God gets right with people. He goes after them and He calls them to Himself. So Pharisees say in verse 11, why does this teacher, why does your teacher, He's asking the disciples, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overheard it and He responds. So He says, hold on Matthew, don't say anything yet. He says, those who are well don't need a physician. If you're feeling all right, you're not going to the doctor. But those who are sick, what's his image that he's put him on himself right now? These people are soul sick. They need me. They need me to come to them and to heal them of their, of their sin and their sickness. And I'm going to do that. And then he says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. He's speaking to the Pharisees. It's like, you remember this Old Testament verse? You guys don't, you guys claim to know the Old Testament. You don't even know this verse. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which means I desire compassion from my people. I desire when somebody looks at a tax collector and sinner for them to feel compassion for them. For them to desire to extend them mercy. Not behave in some religious way that tries to prevent them from coming into the kingdom or at least showing them by your actions that you really don't care about them. But you sure are sacrificial for God. Jesus teaches us something wonderful here in calling us to himself. He teaches us according to the hymn that we sometimes sing, come ye sinners, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's it. That's the only thing that Jesus requires of people who come to him is they feel a need for it. That's who these people are. They want to be with Jesus. They feel a need for Jesus. Matthew felt a need for Jesus. That's why he left the tax booth and went toward him. The Pharisees don't feel a need for Jesus. They're the quote-unquote well. They're the righteous. Now, just to be clear, none of those people exist. Jesus is not talking about that there are really righteous people that exist apart from him. He's talking about people who think of themselves as righteous, people who feel well. See, you're not going to come to Jesus, you're not going to come to a shepherd if you don't believe you're harassed and helpless. And one of the greatest things that Jesus has to teach us before we even come to him is how harassed and helpless we are. And that's what he teaches every Christian, that's what he's taught all of us in this room who are following him right now. We all have the same experience. We may remember it, we may not remember it, but we do know that apart from Jesus, we're lost. We're lost. And until we feel that way, we will never come to him. We will never call on him. And that's why it's so sad, isn't it, brother and sister, when we're trying to reach out to others with the gospel and we just wish we could help them feel their lostness. We wish we could help them feel how sick they are. We wish we could help them know just how desperate their condition is, but they don't feel it because they don't need a doctor. So we need to pray. We need to pray for people that Jesus will help them to see their need for him and then call them to himself. So that's the second way Jesus demonstrates compassion. He calls us to himself. Isn't it great that Jesus wants to be around us? I just think that's awesome. I just think it's awesome that Jesus wants to spend time with me in all my sin and all my weakness and all my unworthiness and undeservingness. Jesus wants to eat with me and he wants to eat with you, too. So he forgives our sin. That's his first demonstration of compassion. He calls us to himself. That's the second one. Here's the third. Jesus deals with us in process and doesn't expect us to be the finished product. Jesus deals with us in process. Let's read chapter 9 verses 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him. Now these are good brothers, okay? These are the disciples of John the Baptist, friend of Jesus. They're just got, they got some questions for Jesus' disciples. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Practical, devotional question. How does Jesus respond? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. Jesus is using a lot of different metaphors here as he typically does in his teaching. He uses a wedding metaphor, and then he uses a wine metaphor. And it, it, it makes sense why he would use a wine metaphor after a wedding metaphor, because wine is served at weddings. Okay, so what he does here is he answers the question in a way that is evocative. The disciples just ask, look, these people are fasting, they claim to follow God, but your disciples don't. What's, what gives, Jesus? Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus answers them, well, listen, fasting, if you know anything about fasting, it's denying yourself food, right, for a period of time, for a greater purpose. But in the Old Testament, fasting is often related to mourning and sadness and trials and difficulties. It's longing for something that you desire, but you don't yet have. And so you're willing to go without food to tell God, this is how much I want you. This is how much I want what I don't have. But listen, he says, Jesus Jesus says, I've come. The bridegroom's here. This isn't a time for fasting. You don't fast at a wedding. You celebrate at a wedding. You don't sit in sackcloth and ashes While the bride and groom are getting ready to come in. Weddings are for feasting, not for fasting. So he says, listen, you don't understand. Since fasting is for mourning and sadness, listen, I'm here. The bridegroom has come. These guys are thrilled. You don't fast right now. There is a time, he says, in verse verse 15, where he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. So there is a time when fasting will be appropriate. And we're in those days now because Jesus has died and rose again and ascended into heaven and he's not yet come back and fasting is meant to say to Jesus, come, I love you, I want to be with you. So there is fasting now. But it's not at this time. It's not when Jesus is still with his disciples on earth. Now he says in verse 16 and 17, he says, Listen, you don't understand that old covenant way of fasting in the Old Testament where you were mourning and you were sad and you were longing for Jesus to come. That doesn't exist anymore because now I've come. That doesn't mean there's not fasting, but it means it's taken on a whole new shape and scope. That's why he says in verses 16 and 17, you can't put. Well, he takes the cloth example first in verse 16. He said, you can't just put a piece of unshunk cloth on an old garment because the patch is going to tear away. And you can't put new wine into old wineskins or the wineskins are going to burst. His illustration here is trying to remind them that something fundamental has changed, that he's come, he's here. And therefore, the old ways of thinking that they're operating under need to be revised into his way of thinking. Which is that he's the bridegroom, and now he invites them to come. But I, you know, I think there's something else here that I think I, I, that I want to underscore that I, I think is very important. See, these these disciples of John are coming to the disciples of Jesus and expecting them to know everything and do everything that they do. And these guys that Jesus is discipling these these new disciples are brand new to following him. They haven't been following him that long. They're still in the honeymoon phase. They don't know everything about marriage yet. I mean, do you ever feel that way sometimes? I know I feel this way as getting ready to go on 13 years of marriage this year. You know, you can look at newlyweds or whatever, especially those of you who've been married a lot longer than me, you know. You can look at those newlyweds and you can say, oh, they got so much to learn. They got so much to learn. And I I can feel that way, too. And it's not in a bad way that you feel that way. It's just like, "But oh, but you know, there's going to be sweet joys that come after thirty, forty years of marriage that they don't know about, and there's going to be difficulties that we're going to ha- they're going to have to work through, that they don't even know about yet. But are you going to go and tell them all that on their wedding day? <laughs> you are, if you're real insensitive. You're going to walk up to them as they just get married. And i now pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And as soon as they walk out of the sanctuary, it's like, you know what? You guys don't know, but difficulties are coming. Enjoy your honeymoon. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that unless they want a punch from the best man. Or maybe the bride or groom himself or himself or herself. But no, what we see here is that these disciples are still in the honeymoon phase. And Jesus is okay with that. He's okay with dealing with us where we are in process. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. This is a very good quote from a man who was born this year, 200 years ago. He was born in 1816, but he still speaks even though he's long dead. He said, Young beginners in the school of Christianity must be dealt with gently. They must be taught as they are able to bear. They must not be expected to receive everything at once. To neglect this rule would be as unwise as to put new wine into old bottles or just put a piece of new cloth on an old garment. There is a mine of deep wisdom in this, which all would do well to remember in the spiritual teaching of those who are young and experienced. We must be careful not to attach an excessive importance to the lesser, lesser things of Christianity. We must not be in a hurry to require a to the minute conformity to one rigid rule in things that are indifferent until the first things of repentance and faith have been thoroughly learned. See what he's saying? It's like these are young disciples. They're learning how to walk with Jesus, read the Bible, pray, go to church, fellowship with other believers. They're not at complicated fasting yet. Ryle continues, to guide us in this matter, we have great need to pray for grace and Christian common sense. Tact in dealing with young disciples is a rare gift, but a very useful one. To know what to insist upon as absolutely necessary from the first and what to reserve as a lesson to be learned when the learner has a more full knowledge is one of the highest attainments of a teacher of souls. And I want to be that way. You can pray for me as a young pastor that I'd be that way. That we would, and that all of us as ministers, that all of us who are called to take the gospel to others would be that way with people. That we, I mean, you see this stuff online all the time. It's like, They're leading with, like, all the secondary issues that are not of first importance. Listen, we lead with the gospel. We lead with who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he did it and what it means to follow him at a basic elementary level. Not, have you read every theological book in the history of the world? Don't you know all these micro, often important, points of theology? But they're not of first importance. And Jesus deals that way with us as his disciples. He's concerned with issues of primary importance, of first importance, not secondary or, God forbid, irrelevant importance. So we need to go and do likewise. We need to learn what that means, because that's a way that we go and learn mercy and not sacrifice. We, we are merciful toward others and are able to give them what they're able to bear. Parents, this applies to us as well, doesn't it? Parenting application for all of us in the room? Be realistic with where your kids are and give them what they need in the moment and focus, keep your keep your focus on the main things. Keep the main things the main things. And then as they're able to grow up and as they progress into middle and high school, and some of you in college or even your adult children, you know, you can encourage them along in those more advanced ways. But I, I mean I would not love my kids right now if I sat down and, you know, tried to all right, you're I know I know you're three, five and eight sit down. I'm going to read the whole gospel of Matthew in the King James version. And I'm going to teach you for an hour and a half. So be ready for that. That would be incredibly unloving. And it would be a, I would be more of a Pharisee than a true follower of Jesus because I would be doing sacrifice and not showing mercy. Just one example. All right. So those are our first three. Let's keep moving here. This is number four, the fourth way that Jesus demonstrates compassion. He not only forgives sin, he not only calls us to himself, he not only deals with us in process, but he touches our uncleanness and raises us from death. Let's start reading at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, this is a ruler This is fantastic. A ruler, a man who has many people over him, comes and kneels before Jesus. What humility, what faith. Comes in, he says, My daughter has just died. I mean put yourself there, parent. Put yourself there. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now this is that's a great that's great language, isn't it? Jesus follows them because when something hurts his disciples it hurts him too. Jesus that's that's when Jesus will follow you. Jesus will follow you when your suffering is great and you don't even feel like you can follow him. He'll take up your following for you and he'll follow you. He'll take you in his arms. And he'll take you where you need to go when you collapse at his feet in utter brokenness and desperation over your life. And something that just has rocked your world has come into it. Jesus is compassionate. And on his way, verse 20, Jesus has another person who needs great help. Behold, a woman who has suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, this is funeral stuff here going on. Jesus is, I mean, he's like, this is Commotion. Don't you know? This isn't death. This is sleep. Don't you dare treat this like it's a funeral. And he goes in. He says, go away. I don't know if he said that in a go away or just go away. For the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They know she's dead. Jesus is not saying she's really sleeping. He's saying that her death is temporary. Okay? he knows she's dead, she's dead. he's not saying something that's not true. that's why they laughed verse 25 but when the crowd has been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose and the report of this went throughout all the district. Now what's really important here is what that the, these two scenes are more relatable than you might at first they might first appear to be. You know why? Because t- and a, a discharge of blood, And touching a dead body, according to the Old Testament, make a person unclean. So this, so in Leviticus chapter 15 verse 19, according to that Levitical law, which would have been in effect here in this time before the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. But here in this time, while this economy of God is still at work here in the first century, That would have made her unclean. And so this woman would not have been able to go to temple for 12 years. This is a woman that wants to be in God's house. This is a woman that wants to be able to go to church, so to speak. And she can't go because none of the priests are going to let her in the door. Because as soon as she comes in, the whole place is contaminated. And now everybody's got to go home. But notice, this woman is so desperate she doesn't even care anymore. She's going to go right up through that crowd, no doubt as many people as they can backing up from her. She's going to go right through that crowd, and she's going to lay hold of Jesus knowing exactly what that meant. As soon as I touch this rabbi, he's unclean. But that's the only way I'm going to get my situation helped. I hear this man can heal. I'm going after him. She's that desperate. But notice, when she touches him, he doesn't become unclean, she becomes unclean. Or sorry, she becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean as a result of her touch, she becomes clean as a result of her touch. That's because Jesus is able to do that. He cleanses us. And yet, in the process, he doesn't become unclean. But the good news is that he's willing to touch us in our uncleanness. He doesn't withdraw from us and go, eww. No, he wraps his arms around. He touches the woman. And her discharge is stopped. And she is now able to leave rejoicing, be made well, go to the temple, not be ceremonially unclean anymore. And then Jesus follows up, goes into the house, touches the dead girl. And he's not made unclean, she's made alive. Now this is good news to us. How how does this demonstrate the compassion of Jesus? Well, I mean, we could talk about numerous ways, but I, I want you to think about this, brother, sister, friend. What good news to us, to those of us who are hurting to those of us who seem to be walking through pain and struggling in some area of life, you are not lost in the crowd to Jesus Christ. You are not lost in the crowd. He is intimately aware of every single detail of your life, the details that Matthew gives about this woman. You know, I I found this interesting in thinking through this this week. Who told Matthew, as he wrote this, that this woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Did she say it? There's no indication in the text that she did. It just said, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I'll be made well. Perhaps she learned that from Jesus. He learned that from Jesus. Jesus knew how long this woman had been suffering. And so perhaps when Matthew asked him later on, why did you say to that woman that? And he's perhaps said to Matthew, this is sanctified imagination here, not Bible, okay? But perhaps he, she, he said to Matthew, Matthew, you have no idea how long that woman's been struggling. I do. It was twelve years. So anyway, you're not lost in the crowd. He knows your struggles. He loves you, and he's attentive to you in a very personal way. Jesus is attentive to your deepest needs, and you have his affectionate attention. And these miracles are meant to teach us something, that when Jesus touches us, and we grab a hold of him by faith like this woman, and we say, Jesus, I'm relying on you. You're my hope. You're my shepherd. You're the one who's going to lead me through this life. The Lord is my shepherd. You're my shepherd. I shall not want... You're all I need. When we turn to him that way, he touches our uncleanness and he raises us from spiritual death in that very moment. And so, brother, sister, has Jesus? if Jesus has done that for you, you should rejoice that you are now clean in God's sight because Jesus has forgiven your sin through his work on the cross and he's raised you out of spiritual death. So my question, perhaps there's some guests with us this morning. Have you... Embrace Jesus in this way. Have, have, has he clean, cleansed your uncleanness? Has he raised you from spiritual death? This is what he can do for you if you will have him as your shepherd. So that's number four. Jesus touches our uncleanness and raises us from death. Number five. Jesus cures our blindness. Stop picking up the story, verse 27. As Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. There's no way he's going to shut them up. that's beautiful. So we get two blind men here, stumbling into a house, no doubt. They follow Jesus. They're just crying after him. And they find out where he is. Can you imagine these guys? They hear the footsteps. They're hearing, there he is. There's the man who claims to be the son of David. There's Jesus of Nazareth. Have you heard about him? He's claiming to be the king. He's healing disease. He's teaching the people. What? He's healing disease? Does he heal blindness? Yes. Okay, I'm getting after him. Come on. Let's go. Tell us where he is. Somebody take me by the hand. Here, Somebody. Will somebody tell me where to go? Am I supposed to walk straight or to the left or right? Where's he going? He's going into a house. What house? Direct me. Somebody take me there. Help me get there. Help, help, help. And they get these guys there and they come in and Jesus just asked him one question. You think I'm able to do this? He's always looking for trust. He's always looking for reliance. Cause that's what gets us connected to Jesus. You want to be connected to Jesus? You gotta rely on Jesus. That's crystal clear throughout this whole chapter, isn't it? He's always, and he's drawing it out explicitly. He's making it explicit. Do you think I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. Then by your faith, let it be done for you. He's making it crystal clear so that everyone who knows around there doesn't know he's just an indiscriminate miracle worker. What he's trying to do is say, listen, it's faith in me that transforms everything. Not just some nebulous belief or not the all of the crowds. It's reliance upon him in the moment. It's literally saying, I transfer my trust to you, Jesus. You're my only hope. And when we say that. All is made right. So we are all spiritually blind by nature. According to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's either you, if you're an unbeliever here, or that was us as believers now. Our minds were blinded to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So how does God fix that? Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. When God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, made his light to shine in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But how does that happen? How do you get from God's light shining in your heart out of, verse 4, your blindness to the glory of Christ? Verse 5. Verse 5 says, we preach Christ. So what God uses to rescue people from spiritual blindness is a sight of the glory of Christ. And what I'm praying this morning, even as I'm preaching right now, is that those of you who are still blind, would, as a result of going through this chapter this morning and saying, wow, Jesus, look at this man. There has never been another man like this man that as a result of that, he would grip your heart and you would be drawn out of spiritual blindness and into his kingdom. That's how it works. There's nothing else we can do. That's why the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written to give you an account of Jesus so that you might believe in him, see his glory, and believe. So that's what we see in the blind men. So Jesus cures our blindness. Has Jesus opened your eyes? Number six, and lastly, Jesus conquers our bondage to Satan. This is another way he demonstrates his compassion. He conquers our bondage to Satan, verse 32, as they were going away from this house. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Jesus conquers our bondage to Satan. He's able to deliver us from Satan's tyranny. That's what we've seen. I'm not going to spend very long on this because Pastor Jonathan spoke about this so strongly last week. But the last, here's what the last, let me summarize this. The last two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and chapters 9, which we considered chapter 9 today, show that Jesus has absolute authority over everything in the world. Doesn't it show that? You know, in this political season, and I'm not going to get partisan up here, but in this political season, everyone is promising to fix our problems. Right? That's, I mean, every candidate in the history of the United States, that's their platform. I mean, regardless of how they believe it's going to get fixed, their bottom line is we got problems, I'm going to fix them, elect me. But I guarantee nobody's going to be able to do this but Jesus Christ, which means no politician's going to fix America, period. They can't get down to this level. Changing human hearts, curing spiritual blindness, raising people from the dead, show me that, president. They can sure make laws, though, can't they? I mean, but that's not going to fix humanity. Jesus must do it. He's the only person who can comprehensively address all the needs of humanity. Whether those needs are physical, spiritual, psychological, because he alone has authority over those realms. He has authority over the physical realm, sickness, disease. He has authority over the natural realm, wind and water, the social realm, restoring relationships, the moral realm, forgiving sin, and the spiritual realm, demons. He has authority over all realms. And therefore, he is able to deliver us. But look, in in conclusion, I want to say three things and then we'll be finished. I want to, I want, I want to see, I want to say this first of all in conclusion as an application of this message. Look what sin has done to us. Do you ever stop and think about that? I mean, it's enough to keep you up at night to read this chapter. Look at these poor people. I mean, paralysis, death, bleeding, blindness, demon possession. It's enough to break your heart. All of our spiritual struggles and physical struggles, including suffering and pain, can be traced back to one thing, sin and separation from God. This should make us lament what Adam did when he took from the fruit of the tree. Because Matthew chapter 9, the the, the natural state in which these people lived with paralysis and sickness and demon possession and all that, that's a result of Adam. Adam when adam sinned all this effects of sin came into the world disease death destruction and disaster everywhere jesus turned the effects of sin are comprehensive on us they render us listen to this paralyzed marginalized unrighteous unsatisfied unclean spiritually dead on the way to physically dead blind and mute that's what spirit that spiritually that's what sin does to us but I want you to also look at, brothers and sisters, what the Lord Jesus can do. Jesus came to deal with this, and he came to deal with it at its root, sin. He raises us from paralysis, welcomes us home, operates on our spiritual sickness, fulfills our longings, washes us clean, raises us from death, and opens our eyes. This is what Jesus can do in the face of sin. He is the second Adam, the greater Adam, the conquering king. So what will you do with this Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus? There are three responses you can have this morning. And I want to give those to you. First of all, you can be among the crowds. There are the crowds here, right? We see what they do. What do they do when Jesus does the first miracle in verse 8? The crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given authority to such men. Now, they're not saved, though. They're not following Jesus. They're just watching what Jesus did, and they're like, wow, glory to God. What about the last miracle, verse 33, when Jesus releases the demon-possessed man? The crowd marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But did you know this? Admiration for Jesus is not the same as allegiance to Jesus. And we got a lot of admirers in the South. We got a whole lot of admirers. They don't have any problem with Jesus. They like Jesus. Pretty cool guy. Does a lot of nice things for a lot of poor people. Who doesn't like Jesus? They get a lot of warm fuzzies when they think about him. They don't mind him. They'll glorify God for him. They'll say, "Wow, never seen anything like that before." But listen, fandom is not the same as followership, and only followership saves. People can be. Don't 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 think that that the only people who are rejecting Jesus and on their way to hell are those who spit at him and post atheistic things on their Facebook page. They're just normal American citizens. They don't have a problem with Jesus. At least at a certain level. They're good with him. They're among the crowds. There's a second, more obstinate response, which is rejecting him. And those would be among the religious, ironically. Verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And verse 11 And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, the only people that are offended by him are people who are deeply religious and deeply moral. Those are typically the people that reject Jesus. Not exclusively, not exclusively. But the the people who typically reject Jesus are those who are well and have no need of a physician. And so they're proud, they're arrogant, they're self righteous, and they don't want to, they don't see any need for him, so they reject him. Finally, the faithful follow him the faithful and broken and needy follow him and so they rely on Jesus what does that look like it means they come to Jesus right these are every, every person whom Jesus touches Jesus either goes to them or they come to him they're not standing on the outside they're not mocking him and making you know comments about him they're going to him regardless of what people say they are identifying with Jesus Christ And that's what makes a Christian. You know how we identify with Jesus Christ? Baptism in the midst of the church. That's how you identify with Jesus. You say, it's not sitting in your pew week after week or sitting in your chair, sitting in your house, just saying, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. But you've never been baptized publicly to testify that. Listen, don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. He'll be ashamed of you. Look, if you're ashamed before your brothers and sisters who want to welcome you and love you and are excited about your baptism, what's what's that going to do in the world? So some of you need to get baptized in here. And we, we invite you to do that. Talk to one of the pastors about that. We want you to go public with your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've come to him. You've asked him to save you. You've reached out spiritually and you've grabbed a hold of him. Well, now it's time to go public in that. And demonstrate that you are one with him. So we rely on Jesus. We go to him. We come to him. We ask him to save us. We reach out and grab him. He reaches out and grabs us. But then we follow him. Just like Matthew did. We get up and we follow him. See, following Jesus doesn't stop with coming to Jesus. That's the beginning. We come to Jesus, but then we follow him, which means we join a local church and we immerse ourselves in its life and we follow Jesus on a personal and family basis if we have a family, if we're not single. And and we follow, we follow him with prayer and reading scripture and, and walking with other brothers and sisters in, a, in, in, a, in fellowship and, and reaching out to others with the gospel. I mean, that's, that's how we follow him together. We don't do it by ourselves. And so also, and this is going to be our bridge into next week, So I want to go ahead and invite the team to come on up now as we close. Our bridge into next week is following Jesus, brothers and sisters, means that we're concerned about bringing others to him. Did you notice how many times Jesus says in this chapter, or I should say Matthew says in this chapter, that people went out and said what he was doing? Look at verse 26. The report of this went through all that district. Verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. See, when people when Jesus touches people's lives, they're going to talk about it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so, you know, what, brothers and sisters, our district is Owensboro, Kentucky, and we need to make him famous around here. We need to tell him what he has done, what 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 Jesus has done for our souls. Tell others what Jesus has done for our souls, because you know what? Found people find people. Found people find people. If we're found by Jesus, if we've been called by Jesus, we have a concern for other people to get found by him too. And we'll hear more about that next week, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time and your word together for an opportunity to gaze on the glorious compassion of your son. We thank you that that compassion is not something that is confined to a book like the Bible, but it is literally leapt off the pages and we have experienced it in our lives. We know the compassion of Jesus and we would know it more. Lord Jesus, we thank you for extending your grace to us, for raising up uh, us uh, up out of our paralysis to sin, for cleansing us from our sins, for making us righteous in you, for forgiving us for being willing to identify us and call us to yourself. You're so compassionate. We thank you for not leaving us in our sin. We thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. We thank you that you have come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we pray that praise you for doing it for us. We pray that you would do it for others. We ask in your name. Amen. Stand and respond.
0: To love
1: Let's take a seat for just a moment. Just a few announcements before I give you the benediction, and we'll be finished. Uh, a couple of announcements. First of all, pleased to announce that forty-five hundred dollars was raised and deposited for for TNT twenty sixteen, and that's going for the youth mission trip. So that's something to praise God for. Also, another thing that's going to benefit the youth in their mission trip is. Alyssa Payne's book sales so she's an educational consultant for Usborne Books you probably see the display right out uh, in the lobby there and um, she's starting a new business so from April 15th through the 31st um, she's gonna be having an online commissions for missions book fair in which all the commission that's earned will be directly given to HBC Youth Mission Trip to the DR this summer and she's praying for $500 to be able to give toward that. So, uh, check out the books. You can pick up information about how to, how to order them if you'd like to online. You can also, um, check your email and I believe there's a link there as well. Um, and then finally, The last announcement, which I had written on a different piece of paper and I don't have up here, so I can't even remember what the last announcement was. Um, I don't remember. Rachel? Oh, yes, thank you. Rachel's reminding me. The women's retreat. Be praying for that this week. Pastor Keith prayed for it. Thank you for that, sister. So um, one other one thing about that: there's still some room for people. If you want to be a last minute kind of get in on it, we still they still have room for five ladies who can go. And just to not be confused, it's not just a singles retreat or a certain age. There's ladies from all ages that are going to this. So don't feel like, well, is this kind of like for my group or not? Look, the body of Christ doesn't have those sorts of distinctions. Okay, we. Operate out of the paradigm that we want to show the world what family looks like, which means we want young and old hanging out together. Cause that doesn't really happen in the world that much, but in the church it should. So we, ladies, please come and encourage sisters of all, um, all places in their, in their walks, both in their age and in their walks with the Lord. And, uh, feel free to take part in that. I encourage you to do so, um, later this week, but you can talk to Rachel or Jana Boswell about it today if you're interested in getting in on that trip. So let me leave you with this benediction from Matthew chapter 9. If you'll just stand with me, we'll be uh, concluded. And I just want to read these words one more time from Matthew 9, verses 36 and 38. And think of yourself, and think of Jesus, and rejoice. Leave rejoicing this morning that you have a compassionate shepherd. When he saw the crowds, and not just the crowds, you in the crowds, he had compassion for them and for you, because you were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, but you're no longer harassed and you're no longer helpless because you have a compassionate shepherd. Walk with him this week. God bless you.